Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, uh, and we have a special one-on-one episode of the podcast today with Zerlina Maxwell, whose new book is The End of White Politics, which has just come out a few days ago, uh, and addresses a set of critical issues that we try to discuss here on a regular basis at uh, Deep State Radio. Uh, Zerlina is known to all of you as a political analyst uh, for MSNBC and NBC, uh, and who has her own show on uh, Sirius, where she also is responsible for the progressive programming. Welcome, Zerlina. Thank you for having me. Um, You know, I I, I thought your book was exquisitely well-timed on two grounds. One is what I would call the small moment, the moment Mm -hmm. that we're in right now, right? COVID, um, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the the crisis that we're facing economically and socially. And the other is what I would call the big moment, the, the politics of the next quarter century, uh, where we are undergoing a transformation, right. um, which I think is driving a lot of this moment, is driving a lot of the politics of the GOP. Um, but I think the point your book makes pretty well, uh, and I am unfortunately reminded of it on a regular basis, is that I don't think the Democratic Party has quite caught up with that reality. Do you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, the reason why I wanted to write this book is because I do not think the Democrats understand what's coming down the pike or what the reality is of the demographics as they stand right now. And it seems like they're continually trying to do a strategy from 1955 because they are under some false impression that they win a majority of white voters ever. They don't. They haven't since 1964. And their base in this moment and going 25 years into the future is going to be a coalition of diverse communities. And when I say diverse, that means people of color, black, brown, uh, AAPI, native uh, uh, and indigenous folks. Uh, And I think that coalition of those both uh, disparate, but also intersecting interests uh, and the urge for, I think, new more representation um, because the perspectives that those communities can bring to the conversation are transformational. So I think the Democrats need to get, get with it. So that's why I wanted to write the book. So I, I think that it's interesting that it came out now. And when COVID started, David, I didn't think it would be relevant anymore. I thought the pandemic sort of made politics seem small because you sort of have to just listen to the scientists and not do any analysis in that moment because it's not about politics in that moment. But I think Black Lives Matter coming um, back with 
a vengeance, um, not that they went anywhere, but um, becoming a mainstream movement with majority support in America right now, it demonstrates that the the timing for the book, um, it may have always been relevant um, for the, I mean, it may always be relevant for the next 25 years because until the Democrats get it, we're still going to be having this conversation. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think COVID underscored it, right? So that, you know, if you, you saw um, black communities and communities of color uh, have higher infection rates, uh, have higher mortality rates, have a, m- a much greater negative impact of uh, the economic squeeze. Right. Uh, and even when we've had little upticks, recover less than the white communities. And so if you ever wanted to say, you know, what's institutional racism in the mm-hmm. United States about? And I was just watching the bar hearing and he doesn't seem to know what it's about. But, but, but if you ever wanted to say it and see it, you would say, here are communities that don't get healthcare, that don't get education, that don't get jobs, that don't have the infrastructure. And so when we have a crisis, they're hit hardest. Right. Well, so- I think, I, you know, to that point, I think one of the things that Democrats can do going forward is actually acknowledge that, you know, there are disparate impacts and different outcomes for different groups of people and that you can't set the same policy agenda and message the same way to everyone. And often they'll come out, you know, they'll focus group test something and they'll meet with a bunch of consultants and they'll come up with, you know, a message that's supposed to, you know, work for everyone. And I think that while it's true that you're, you're trying to, you know, speak to people's economic pain, there's, a, there's ways in which you can do that that come across more authentic to your point that you're not going to say, okay, so we're going to, you know, just address your economic pain when, you know, your socioeconomic class uh, doesn't make you immune from police brutality as a black person. You can be a rich, wealthy black person and still be killed by the police. And then the second piece, when no one gets in trouble, the piece that we always have to remember is a part of it. Um, and, and so you have to acknowledge the, the injustice of that and, and work to change the institutions that lead to those outcomes happening all the time. Yeah, well, I think you make the point in the book very well that, you know, one of the core ideas behind white privilege is that each moment of every day, if you're white, you don't have to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you do. So it's not just about crisis. It's about a constant condition, right? Yes. And I think, you know, until you sort of live in the body of a, of a marginalized person, like a black person or a woman um, or a Latino person, a Latinx person, I think you, you don't understand what it, what it may be like. I mean, you can empathize with the experience and maybe you have some, um, you know, identity that makes your experience unique. And then we can talk about that. But I think, you know, what I wanted to make clear in the book is that when we're talking about white privilege, no one is calling anyone a racist. That's not what that means. That means that you did not have to have a thought about, you know, as, as a cisgendered white man, you didn't have to think about whether your outfit is going to uh, attract street harassment or catcalling when you're on your way to work. Um, as a cisgendered white man, you don't have to think about whether or not you're going to be mistaken for a burglar and killed. And then those people don't get in trouble as a result um, when you go out for your morning job. And, and that is sort of the, the multitude and the compound effect of, of that anxiety and that stress. Number one, science tells us that 
that does have an impact in some of these, as Anthony Fauci says, comorbidities, right? High hypertension, high blood pressure, stroke, all of these things, right? All of these things are not happening in a vacuum. They're happening because, you know, black and brown communities have less access to healthy food. They have less access to healthcare uh, to prevent some of these um, conditions before they get too bad. And, um, you know, you're, you're also dealing with just the, the stress on your body of living in a society where the threat of danger can happen in any moment, any moment. And, and, and that is a, that's, a lot, that's a big burden to shoulder um, as you move throughout the world. And so what I hope I'm saying, um, or what I hope I, I, uh, people take away from what I'm saying in the book is that I, I want you to empathize with that experience as opposed to be defensive that me identifying some of the privileges that you may have means that you're a bad person or it's some sort of you know personal indictment on you as a human being where where what I'm really just saying is you know there's things you don't have to think about and that adds up throughout the course of a lifetime and so just un- when you understand that you can you can be a much more effective ally and and hopefully an accomplice in dismantling the structures that lead to those disparate outcomes in the first place. Right. And some of those outcomes are so profoundly disparate that you also have to sort of see incrementalism as a threat. So, for example, if the median net worth of a white family is 10 times the median net worth of a black family, as it is, mm-hmm. 17000 to 171000 or if when you're born a black man in America, you get a decade less life than a white man. That, that's a gigantic difference. And so when people say, well, let's change this little thing here, let's change this little thing there, that uh, is, is grotesquely inadequate. But to go back to the Democrats, we're both Demo- mm-hmm. you know, Democrats, yeah. to go back to this issue, you know, I also see that the, the Democrats are, pl- are fighting this war in a different way from the Republicans. The Republicans say, this is a threat to our existence. We're going to tap into it because there are a lot of white people who are afraid and aggrieved, but we're going to use every means at our disposal to keep these people of color away from the polls. We are going to suppress the vote. We are going to clean voter rolls. We're going um, to have Russians come in and inflame racial, racial time. We'll do everything. And the Democrats are like, hmm, this, you know, that's, they're like having a watercress sandwich and, and they're not taking this right. real seriously. And I think, again, you point out in the book, Barack Obama put together a coalition that won because people who don't normally vote, voted. Right. And, 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 we, and we don't seem to get that. Why is well, that? Well, I think that even in this election cycle, it may be even easier on Democrats. So I think that normally in an election, you're trying to persuade voters to vote for you. We're in pandemic. The Democrats have the best message uh, for, for running an effective campaign in this moment. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Of course not. We're in quarantine. It is literally not better than it was four years ago. So you have the best argument. So now you don't have to persuade. Now you have to turn out the vote. In order to turn out the vote, you need to make it easy as possible for people to be able to cast their ballots. So in this election, it's not 99 or 98 days. I don't even know what it is today until election day. Today is election day because today everyone needs to ask themselves how they're going to vote. 
Are they going to vote by mail? Are they going to vote in person? Based on the answer of that question, you go to the next step. If you're voting in person, then okay, well, you can spend the next 98 days registering other voters, making sure all your friends are registered, asking them how they plan to vote in person or by mail. The answer is by mail, then you need to go to vote.org, look up your own individual state to see what the requirements are, whether or not you have to, like in New York, you have to send an absentee ballot application for your ballot. So you can't do it all online. You actually have to mail in a piece of paper. Um, that's going to be, you know, my dad would say a hitch in the giddy up uh, for, you know, the Gen Zers of the world that are like, what is a printer? So <laughs> I think, you know, even on the very simple level of literal logistics and voter education, that's where Democrats need to focus from now until November. There is no persuading people about the message. It's good you're putting out policies. I'm glad to see it because Elizabeth Warren was required to do that during the primary. So it's good that uh, the Biden camp is putting out robust policies that will address some of the issues we were talking about that impact uh, certain communities of color. But it's not going to matter what policy they put out if people in those communities are not able to, number one, cast their ballots in a safe way and also ensure that they're doing it correctly so that their ballot is counted properly. Because the reason I say everybody needs to do it now is because if your ballot, you can actually mail in your absentee ballot early. And if it is not accepted, if there's a mistake in it, you still have a little bit of time to correct that. So that's why everybody should think about how they're going to vote. And that's what the Democrats need to be focused on. It's, it's less a matter of message. Um, I do obviously have an entire chapter on Joe Biden, the ways in which I think that he can improve. It's a very critical chapter, but I think it comes from a place of good intention. I think that he means it when he says he wants to be a transitional figure to the future. I think he means it when he says, I'm seriously considering these four black women to be my vice presidential pick. I think he means it when he says, I'm going to listen to you know the people around me from these uh, communities who aren't normally represented in positions of power so that they can inform my policymaking and agenda as I go um, try to clean up this mess that we're in. Um, but I also think that it's important that he not get sucked into the, well, I'm the safe choice, because safe sometimes for people means moderate. And I don't think this moment you know, calls for any type of moderate agenda. It, it calls for big and bold. Um, obviously what we had is not what we have currently. The systems we have in place are not sufficient to, uh, you know, hold any of, um, the American people up in the way that, um, our government is supposed to support, um, its citizens and people who live, uh, within our borders. Uh, and I just think that, you know, you don't, you shouldn't, no one should look at the situation and be too fatalistic though. I think that these are simple things. If we just focus on the practical, how to turn out those voters in that Obama coalition that I talk about in the book, how to make sure that those voters vote properly and their votes are counted. And then we just keep working to do that. Um, and you make it so targeted uh, that, you know, people are like, okay, well, voting is easy. I can even look it up as I'm filling out my absentee ballot. I can Google some of the down ballot stuff that I may, may not have Googled ahead of time. I mean, this is sort of an easier way for people to vote. And I think people will um, take advantage, but they have 
to decide how they're going to vote in person or by mail and start today to figure out in your state, you know, how, what the process is for mail-in voting or absentee voting in your own state. Um, Because it's, at this point, I don't even, I mean, Joe Biden can be an incrementalist. I mean, I I feel like everybody would be willing to to vote for a statue at this point uh, against Donald Trump. So I, I, I don't know that he has, you know, such trouble in this moment with his message, but I do warn him and caution him in the book about going to be, um, you know, sort of reverting back to the old Joe Biden and being too incrementalist. Um, and at the same time, I think sometimes white Democrats can often, or mo- the moderate white Democrats, not, not the, the lefties, um, they can tend to try to make that white Trump supporter not feel bad about their support for Trump. And just know that every time you start a sentence with, well, I don't think the people that support Donald Trump are racist. Just know that black and brown people hear you when, hear you, when you say that and they know about the brown kids in cages and they're like side-eyeing you because that sounds wildly offensive to, to a black or brown person who's being harmed tangibly by Donald Trump's policies. Um, and so I think there are ways in which you can speak to those communities and speak to the broader coalition uh, without turning voters of color off from the entire process. Right. But not turning people off is only, you know, partway there, right? We, mm-hmm. There are big changes. You talk about yeah. the need for transformational changes. I thought the chapter on, on Biden was especially important because people forget that Joe Biden was chosen as Barack Obama's running mate to be a kind of a link to the past. Mm-hmm. To, and, and, and there are plenty of people who might want to vote for Joe Biden right now as a link to the past. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you don't address structural racism, if you don't address uh, problems in the healthcare system, problems in the education system, problems in the economy itself in a transformational way, then you're going to do the second and third and 10th edition of this book over the course of the next 25 years. And there's not going to be that much change. So as you look to Joe Biden, you know, you mentioned, you know, he's got a number of women of color as potential VP candidates. Um, You know, that's, that would be a sign, but it might also be a sub. And so the question becomes when you have a checklist and say, this is a meaningful change that I want to look for in the campaign or right after the campaign that says this is going to be different or if it goes the other way, a little bit of a red light going off. What, what, what's the checklist? I think that, you know, on the economic front, I think they're, they're, he would do well by, uh, you know, telling us who his cabinet's going to be, um, you know, maybe shortly after he tells us who the vice presidential pick is so that we can establish sort of like, okay, are, are your economic policies and that agenda going to be pro Wall Street or did you pick Elizabeth Warren? Um, you know, and I think, I think that he can signal to, to the base and to the different parts of the coalition, you know, what his governing, uh, legacy will be based on who he puts in particular positions. I don't necessarily, like the one thing I think is important to understand is that I'm not saying, you know, I've been open about the fact that I think, I think he should pick a black woman, but it's not because, uh, I want to see a black woman in the picture. I mean, that's nice. But I want the perspective the black woman brings into the White House to be the voice in Joe Biden's head when, you know, he's talking to Charlemagne and he knows not to make a joke that's off color because he knows 
you know, what that black woman said, or um, that black woman can really, uh, I think, be the moral compass, to quote one of my Hillary Clinton campaign colleagues, Mignon Moore. She says, black women are the moral compass of the nation. And I think they're, you know, because black women are so woefully and systemically unprotected, um, you know, if name an indicator, we're, we're likely at the bottom of it, other than uh, education. <laughs> Um, but uh, certainly economic uh, indicators mean that we have a lot to lose and then we also have a lot to gain by pushing these systems in a more progressive direction. So when you are pushing from the, from the margins, you're lifting everyone up. I also believe that a Black woman creates the necessary space for other people who haven't always been given that space to speak or they they haven't been um, validated in some of their concerns, it gives them space to speak. So even in the, in the situation uh, recently with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, I think the unique moment uh, that this, this year presents is that we now have the space to speak to some of these inequities and a black woman in the white house would be able to do that with Joe Biden. I think, you know, certainly sexism has persisted on Capitol Hill forever, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not only in a position of power to speak back to that uh, inequity and that harassment that she experienced, but she was also able to do so as somebody who represents the face of, and I think uh, sort of leadership style of the next generation. I think that the squad and, uh, you know, Ayanna Presley, I also quote in the book, her, her world sort of, I, I think policy is her love language, she says all the time. But she also says the people closest to the pain need to be the closest to the power. And I think fundamentally that's sort of what the next generation of leaders is going to take shape um, in that vision. And so I think, you know, as we head forward, it's about, you know, the voice, in, the voice that's in the room with Joe Biden. You know, we all want to be in the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. Um, but you also want to make sure that the perspectives that are in that room will actually push Joe Biden because his perspective is limited. And so I think, you know, when you look at who his vice presidential pick, who, who his cabinet picks are, you'll be able to see sort of how he sees where his blind spots are and how those specific picks uh, could work to fill, fill some of those blind spots he has. I think that, you know, those, those are critical points. You know, to go back to your first point about the economic side, unless you change the way the system is rigged, unless you address the kind of things yeah. that Elizabeth Warren was talking about, you can't change structural racism. You also can't lift up the people who need being lifted up. And your latter point about the, the Ayanna Presley point about being close to the pain, well, that's what the Democratic Party is supposed to be about. Right. But there is an interesting prospect here, which I guess, you know, we're about run out of time, but I, I think it's, a, you know, maybe a good place to end with your thoughts on it. But the person that Joe Biden picks is not Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate alone. Joe right. Biden is an old guy yeah. and he's probably not going to serve two, two terms. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always been kind of drawn to the idea that if he was the candidate, he should say, I'm the transitional candidate. Mm -hmm. I'm going to lift up the next generation. And I expect my vice president to be my successor. And so there is a realistic possibility that the next Democratic candidate for president will be a woman of color. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, and conceivably, the next president would yeah. be a, a, a woman of color. How do you how, how do how do you view that in the context of the book? Because I mean, maybe that's the most optimistic possible view, but it's not outlandish. No, it's not outlandish, and I think certainly having lived through the pain of 2016. You know, I don't know if I say it in the book or if I, I think I do say it in the book. It's something that I talk about a lot. The first thought I had when we lost, when it was clear that we lost in 2016, this is true. Literally the first thought I had was, oh, you're so dumb. Why did you think that the first woman who ever got the nomination was going to win? Did you think it would be that easy? When has anything ever been easy as a woman? Ever. Uh, Particularly as a black woman. Never. You always have to be better and smarter and more prepared and more aggressive and more charismatic in all of those ways um, to, to get the same job or, don't, or to not get the job um, sometimes. And, you know, when you live that experience over and over and over, you know, I think you have an ability to look at this current moment and say, okay, we need to transition to something different. Because one of the things I think that is so critically important to understand And one of the reasons why I wanted to, number one, write the book, but also, you know, encourage young people of color or young people of all backgrounds, really, but but younger, a younger generation of people to think of political campaigns as a career and to think of political campaigns as a place to engage, not just activism or tweeting or any of those kinds of um, protests. You can also work within the system to change it on the inside. If you don't like a political campaign's message, go join the comm staff, you know? And I think that's one of the underlying messages of the book is that I really want to encourage any students that are out there, any people that are furloughed and you're like, I'm bored, or maybe you're not bored. You have all these kids, but you need a break from those kids. Um, You know, there are plenty of ways in which you can engage with this uh, campaign and, and sort of, you know, feel like you're engaged going forward. And I think that, that, pick that Joe Biden uh, chooses um, will represent sort of that, that future that I'm trying to build, which is one that really reflects what America looks like. America does not look like 100 white guys. It hasn't for a really long time. Um, and I, I'm not, I don't know that it ever did. Um, certainly the majority uh, was, was white people. Um, and, it, and it won't be uh, very soon. And in Texas and California, it already is not. So that means that our politics have to look different. The people we put in positions of power have to look different and they have to look more like the people who vote for them. Yeah, and I think, by the way, for those of you who are out there saying, what can I do about this? Another good part of the book is that it tells Zerlina's story and that in 2008, Zerlina said, what can I do to make a difference? And you went to the Obama website and you said, "Mm, Virginia. And there was one other state, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, these places I could go and make a difference. And you, you know, try to, you know, you signed up via the website, said, let me do something here. Uh, So it is, you know, an open possibility for people to get involved and do so in the, in the way that you did. Another thing in the book, and I know that you have time constraints that we've got to wrap up here that, that struck me as you, you, you make reference to, uh, one of the advantages of having um, uh, a black woman as a as an advisor is is your directness, yes. and that Joe Joe Biden can count on that directness. And one of the things that I got out of the book was, you know, it is a beautifully written Thank direct you. book that addresses a critically important area. And don't be misled 
by the title, The End of White Politics, because although that's a critically important portion of it, it's really about the future of American politics. It's about a transition that's taking place and will take place over the next 25 years and how the political parties respond to it is going to define who we are as a country. It really Uh, will. It really will. And I I, I thank you for saying that um, about the writing. I'm a lawyer by training, so when people like something that I've written, I, I feel... Like, okay, that's great because it, it just adds a little boost to the confidence I have in, in my writing, um, just full stop. So thank you for that. And I think, you know, when I'm an optimistic person by nature, I have family members who marched in Selma. So how could I not be optimistic? I get to vote. We've had a black president. Things are changing under our feet, literally. And so I think it's important for people to know that, you know, I feel like this is a vision for a brighter future. And it's, you know, the title is bold, but I think everybody, if you think about it for a second, you understand that we've been doing white politics this entire time. We have focused only on basically white men and diners, um, you know, certainly for the last four years, but basically since the country's founding. And it's, it's really important that we expand that spectrum so that everybody's interests can be considered as equally valid. And I think thought that was what our country was founded on, in the language at least, not maybe in the intention. Um, so I hope that we can, I think, build those coalitions that, that the future uh, needs us to build as a party so that we can, you know, be reflected in our, uh, you know, halls of Congress and in the White House, because I think people benefit not just from seeing themselves uh, in positions of power, but also, like I said, the perspective that those uh, diverse communities can bring to those positions. Well, and the way we get there is leaders. You mentioned Alexandria mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez yeah. or Ayanna Presley, um, uh, some of the people who are candidates for vice president now, um, but also leading thinkers, people like yourself who have produced books like this. We are very grateful that you have. I encourage everybody out there who has been a Deep State Radio listener to go get the book and read it because it will provide a perspective on where we're going. That's vital. Uh, good luck with it. I hope that, Thank you very much. that it's very successful for you. And maybe the encouraging words will encourage you to go write another one because I thought this one was terrific. Oh, thank you. Um, I, so, I have a lot of book ideas. So maybe, I'll, maybe I will write another one. Well, I mean, I w- we're going to be in quarantine for a while. It seems like it might be a good idea to just start writing another one. Yeah, no, no. That's exactly how I responded to quarantine. Yeah. That and, and working out every day. But, oh yeah, um, that's what I do too. Do you work out? You work out every day. Every day. Me every, too. Every every day. I went to a doctor not too long ago, and she said the best way to avoid Alzheimer's, according to studies, is an hour of exercise every day. Really? And I was I like, didn't know that. I don't know. I didn't either. So I was like, okay, I don't need more motivation than that. Right. So so, so both of these things are things that we can take advantage of. Yes. In the in in this period, uh, for those of you who. Uh, 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 are, are joining us for the first time, you know, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got uh, uh, more information on other podcasts. Yesterday, we had a great conversation with Mary Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, day after tomorrow, uh, Leon Panetta, former defense secretary and uh, CIA director, is coming along to talk about what he thinks the Biden agenda on national security should be. So this is a perfect week to see the range of people that that, that uh, we're trying to bring everybody here at, at Deep State Radio. Um, and for that, uh, we thank all of you for listening, and especially we thank you, Zerlina, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.